welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Please remain standing and pray with me. Lord God, I I come to you and I confess that I am a jar of clay. Uh, I'm a pot. I pray, Lord, I'm not a cracked pot, but I'm a jar of clay. And Lord, the scripture tells us, though, that we have treasures in jars of clay. It is the treasure of the gospel, Lord, I would proclaim this morning. So please, Lord, pour out from this pot, this clay pot, the treasure of the good news, and may it bring blessing and salvation and abundant life to the hearer of God's word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Yes, I may be a cracked pot, but I hope not. Well, this morning, if you were attending to the reading of Scripture, you realize that one of our readings is, again, from the book of Revelation. The passages that we've been hearing from Revelation that we're focusing on during these great 50 days of Easter are actually assigned by the lectionary. There is The lectionary is a, a set of Bible readings. It's a Bible reading plan, a three-year plan, a three-year cycle, which helps us become familiar with a lot of the Bible and not just our favorite parts. You know, we can do that. We can just get stuck in one little thing and listen to that over and over. But it kind of broadens our biblical horizons. And the reason that I wanted us to focus on these revelation texts that are assigned in the lectionary for this season is because they all resound with the glory of the risen Jesus and God's victory over the powers of evil. That is, every one of these has music in it. Each one of these readings has a that has someone bursting out with a song of praise, and in some cases, multitudes singing songs of praise. And I wanted to just, I wanted us to just bathe in these songs of rejoicing that we are hearing Sunday by Sunday in this apocalyptic prophetic letter. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's an apocalyptic prophetic letter. You can go back to the first in the series of these sermons and get the, the, uh, the background for that. And this Sunday, we have yet another passage that flows with songs of praise to God and that focuses on joyful celebration, the joyful celebration of God's triumph over evil, God's victory over evil. Now, in order for us to understand the text that we just heard read this morning, and in order for us to understand it so that we can join in its celebration, we need to have some background. We have to have some things explained. First of all, who is this great prostitute that's spoken of in that hymn of praise? And why are the multitudes of, a multitude of heaven singing praises to God for her downfall and judgment? Well, in order to get that answer, we actually have to zip back to, yes, zipping back. It's a biblical term. Zip back to, uh, Revelation chapter seven, where John says this in verse five, um, about the great harlot or the great prostitute. John, uh, excuse me, Revelation 17, verse 5, and on her forehead, this great prostitute, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. 
Okay, well, that just really cleared it all up for us then, didn't it? Uh, no, I know that it doesn't. No, seriously, here's the download. John is using some, some metaphors. We have a lot of that in, you know what a metaphor is? A metaphor, a meta is to keep cows in. That's what a meta is for. No, I'm sorry. Ooh, ooh, I will punish you with dad humor if you don't listen. Uh, no, John is using a metaphor, many metaphors throughout the book of Revelation. And he's actually going back. He's saying this, there, uh, he's using the ancient city and the ancient empire of Babylon, which is long gone by the time that John is writing the book of Le- Revelation. He's using Babylon as a code word, code language for another great city, another great empire, the city and empire of his day which is the city and the empire of Rome. So John is writing during a time when Christians in Rome are facing two extreme pressures seeking to get them to renounce Jesus Christ. The first pressure was overt persecution, torture, imprisonment, confiscation of property, uh, mob violence, state persecution coercive force and oppression to make people deny Jesus. Deny Jesus or we will torture and kill you. That's the persecution they were facing. But the second force that was trying to annihilate the church was the culture's seduction, the Roman culture's seduction to assimilate, to blend in with paganism, to compromise their loyalty to Jesus Christ. Just be a good pagan Roman and everything is going to be fine. So here's the connection. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John looked back to the experience of the people of God in the Old Testament, and he saw that a similar empire, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, destroyed Jerusalem, 584, thereabouts, 587, something like that, 6th century B.C., destroyed Jerusalem and took the southern kingdom, God's people, southern kingdom of Judah, into exile. And, and while they were in captivity, God's people were tempted to assimilate into idol worship and the immorality of Babylon. If you want to read more about that, go back to the book of Daniel. Daniel's chapter 1 through 7 talks about these repeated attempts to get the Jewish people of that day to assimilate, to worship the idols of Babylon, to eat the unclean food of Babylon, to participate in the immorality of Babylon. And so here's what's going on. John is saying, Rome is just like Babylon. She wants to seduce you, Christians, to compromise your faith in Jesus in exchange for pleasure and prosperity and luxury. All right? So Dennis E. Johnson writes, The harlot Babylon shows us Rome from the perspective of the spiritual threat of compromise through economic seduction. Yet she also transcends Rome and encompasses every expression of the idolatry that worships worships, worships economic prosperity and cultural achievement, whether in Nineveh, Chaldean Babylon, Tyre, Rome, or later entrepreneurial empires. Hmm, what could he mean, later entrepreneurial empires? Hmm, let the reader understand. You see, this directly affects us in this church, in this building today. 
the spiritual reality that is the great prostitute Babylon still seeks to seduce us today. And it has always used this economic seduction, whether it was in the 19, late 50s and early 60s, you know, the, the mad, anybody ever watch? Don't, don't raise your hand. I don't want to know. Mad Men was a, was a hugely successful series. I think it ran on USA or one of the cable networks, but it was really about Madison Avenue in the 60s and the, uh, jet setter, uh, crowd and all of that. And, and, uh, there were, the, to, to be prosperous in that setting, to have the prosperity that Madison Avenue promised, you had to compromise your integrity. There's a lot about that in that series. You know, and sometimes we face that too. The, the boss that says, fudge this report. Uh, don't fulfill this obligation to a client. We face those kind of, those kind of seductions every day. You can get the promotion. You can keep your job. You just need to compromise your integrity. All that stuff we heard about, about caring for our neighbor in Leviticus chapter 19. I hope you were listening to that. Every time an employer says, Oh, you know what? You should oppress the poor. Take advantage of them. That's one of the ways that economic temptation comes. But we are seeing a new and virulent form of it in the United States and in other Western nations today where more and more Christians, Christians in this room right now, are being given the choice to surrender their biblical convictions in order to participate in the marketplace. Surrender your convictions about Jesus and about the Christian faith and how you live that out, and you can have a prosperous life. But if you won't get off of those points, things are going to be bad for you. Why this insistence? Why why is there this insistence to conform? Well, Archbishop Charles Chaput, Chaput, that is his pronunciation, is hard. It looks like Chaput is Chaput of Philadelphia says this. He's, listen, evil cannot abide its critics. Evil does not want to be tolerated. It needs to be vindicated. It demands to be seen as right. Why this insistence? Why this insistence to conform? Because evil demands to be seen as right. So you want to be a baker? You want to be a photographer? You want to be the fire chief of Atlanta? You want to work for a major corporation in Silicon Valley? You want to be an Australian rugby star? Fine, you're going to have to shut up and affirm and celebrate our cultural idols, our cultural idols. You can't have your devotion to Jesus Christ and visibly live your faith in Jesus and share in the Babylonian dream. You can't have your Jesus and share in the Babylonian dream. Dissenters must be crushed. No conscientious objectors are allowed. And if we take the kind of hyperbolic language of revelation into account, it would they would say, we won't be satisfied until you surrender your faith or until you are living under a bridge and digging through dumpsters for your next meal. Rod Dreher writes, we are on the brink of, an, of entire areas, we are on the brink of entire areas of commercial and professional life being off limits to believers whose consciences will not allow them to burn incense to the gods of our age. 
So what do we do when the choices, when the choice becomes a choice between prosperity and Jesus, between having the Babylonian dream or having Jesus? What do we do? Well, the answer from Revelation 18, verse 4, is that there can be no compromise with the great prostitute. Revelation 18, verse 4, Then I, John, heard another voice from heaven. Who could this voice be? Listen to the context. Then I, John, heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. We have to have a posture to stand apart when we are being pressured by economic seduction to compromise our faith in Jesus Christ. But God ultimately judges and destroys that Babylonian system of subduction as a result of all, and as a result of that, all of heaven breaks forth in a pain, P-A-E-N, P-A-P-A-E-N, a song, a song of praise, and a song of praise. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. And by the way, I, that, I have been in um, stadium events with, uh, well, I, there was a, a Christian men's gathering one time in a football stadium. Guys, there had to be a, like, I think 100,000 men there, guys who didn't have anybody telling them not to sing too loud. Uh, around them, and uh, and they were singing these, these male voices singing at the top. I got a, I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, <laughs> singing at the top of their lungs uh, these great hymns of the faith, like "Crown Him with Many Crowns," like we just sang this morning as our entrance hymn, our processional hymn, and it it sounded like like. The roar of the ocean is, there's nothing like it. And I, I got to think that somehow the, hearing the voices of angels and God's faithful men and women in heaven all together, that revelation vision of chapter seven, where before the throne and before the lamb were standing a great multitude that no one could count of every kindred nation and tr- tongue praising God and praising the lamb with palm branches in their hands. And it had to sound like that. It, that was just a flavor of it. There's nothing like it. The chills run up and down your spine. You're overwhelmed with a flood of praise. Hallelujah, the, vo- the voices are singing. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for His judgments. His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with him, her immorality and has avenged on, has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't that seem a little bit wrong? We're singing about, yay, God is avenged and destroyed bad stuff. Isn't that, are we supposed to, that's, isn't that how you sing? Is that what we're supposed to be doing? Praising God for something's destruction? Praising God for, for, for vengeance, for his vengeance? Well, what the host of heaven and those on earth are praising God for here is he is riding all wrongs. You know, the scripture says in Romans chapter 12, it tells you and me, finite, sinful, fallen, Ignorant human beings, above all, brothers and sisters, do not take revenge. For it says, I am the Lord, I will avenge. 
And so God is the one who takes vengeance, not us, because He's infinitely compassionate, infinitely just, infinitely knowledgeable, and we're none of those things. It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, that justice that is being praised here, and you know, we all innately long for justice. We, we long for it. If you don't believe that, you just need to spend time on a playground with, with, uh, elementary school children. That's not fair. You broke in line. I got, you, it's my turn. What is that? That's the justice gene crying out. That's right there. I don't know where it is on that chrome, on the DNA, but there is a justice gene that we are created with, and it cries out when we see injustice. And so what the praise of, of the, that multitude in heaven is about is justice is finally, finally being done. Because if you are expecting to see justice perfectly done in this life, you have a lifetime of disappointment ahead of you. Because it's not done. Perfectly here. Rarely, proximately. But one day it will be done. The power that corrupted and destroyed the earth, and it says destroyed the earth, I'm taking that to even mean ecological injustice. The power that killed Jesus' followers who would not surrender their faith and was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs for Jesus. That power of death and destruction has been conquered never to rise again and her smoke goes up forever and ever. What does that mean? It means that she will, that power to destroy, to seduce, to kill will never rise again. Yes, we should praise God for that. But you know who doesn't like this kind of praise? You know who gets really uncomfortable with this praising God for his judgment? Comfortable people don't like it. Middle-class people like me don't like it. Privileged people don't like it. People who have never suffered grave injustice get flustered at this kind of talk about God's judgment. But people who have been oppressed systematically and generationally, people who have been, have been persecuted, thrill to think that there is a day coming when wickedness is punished and righteousness is rewarded. The persecuted, excluded Christians in the Roman Empire were no doubt electrified when they first heard these words read. The knowledge that God is in control and that evil will be judged brings hope that can endure persecution and oppression. It brings hope to seduced churches that you can stand. It brings hope to those who are the victims of violence and gives them the ability to endure. One author writes, Howard Thurman, an African-American scholar at Boston University in the mid-20th century, gave a famous lecture at Harvard in 1947 on the meaning of, quote, Negro spirituals, unquote. Thurman argued this sung faith served to deepen the slave's capacity for endurance. The spirituals encompassed the Christian belief in a final judgment, a day when all wrongs would be made right. It also included a belief in personal immortality and the reunion with loved ones forever. And out of these doctrines, the conviction, he, uh, Thurman said, the conviction grew that this is the kind of universe that cannot deny ultimately the demands of love and longing. Uniting with loved ones 
turned finally on the hope of immortality, and the issue of immortality turned on God. Therefore, God would make it right. So Thurman denied that this Christian hope weakened the slave's self-respect or ability to face their captors. Rather, he said, it taught a people how to ride high in life. To look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as a raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment with all its cruelty would not crush, could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. Why could nothing destroy their hope? It was because it was otherworldly. It was not based on any circumstances within the walls of this world where justice is not done. It was faith, it was based on a faith in a God beyond this world who will bring ultimate judgment and ultimate justice where all wrongs will be righted or all broken relationships, families that got sold down south. Oh, I'm sorry. You're in the splash zone. Families that got sold down south. You might not know what that means, but if you lived in a border state or if you lived in Virginia or you lived in Maryland, you were a slave, it was bad, but you did not want to get sold down south to Mississippi and Alabama where those families were never seen again. One day they'll be back together. You know that had to just thrill those believers who heard those words. I was reading uh, an, uh, an article actually from a book about Protestantism and religion in the so former Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc. And uh, it, uh, talking about Nikolai Ceausescu, Nikolai, this is just, just this past week. From 1965 to 1989, Nikolai, Nikolai Ceausescu was the brutal communist dictator of the Socialist Republic of Romania. He systematically oppressed and starved his population. But he reserved his most extreme, extreme cruelty for Christians as a violent persecutor of the church. And he could never understand why in the face of persecution, this is actually in this book, why in the face of persecution, Christians took great strength and encouragement from the good news of God's victory in the book of Revelation. Christians were fascinated in an oppressed communist society with the book of Revelation. And then in December of 1989, when the communists were overthrown and Ceausescu was tried and executed for his crimes, Romanian National Radio announced, and I heard this, I've told you about this before, but it, the, the Romanian equivalent of NPR announced this. Oh, what wonderful news on this Christmas evening the Antichrist is dead. They've been saturated in the truth that God's victory will come. And they read their oppression through the lens of those great songs of praise and revelation. Who needs to hear this? People who have been oppressed. People need to hear this. People who have not received justice. They need to hear this. And they can praise that kind of praise. And from the praise of God making all things right, the very next th thing that happens is a party. The next thing that happens in this passage is a party. I don't know how people can think that following Jesus is all drab or doom and gloom when the entire trajectory of the universe is to party. 
That's where it's going, y'all. To a party. Everybody gets a koozie and a cold one. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited. Blessed are those who are invited to the party, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. You know, maybe one of the reasons why Christians make such a big deal out of God's view of marriage is that the entire story of humanity is bracketed by weddings. The story of humanity begins with the coming together in a first marriage of Adam and Eve in the garden. And the story of humanity ends with the union of Jesus and His bride, the church, at the consummation of all things. Marriages are important for Christians because they define the scope of God's plan for His creation. There is a party coming, y'all. There's a party coming, and it was prophesied long before John saw this vision. Way back in the 8th century B.C., Isaiah the prophet said this in Isaiah 25, On this mountain, this is the same party being prophesied. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow. Now you're thinking, ooh, I don't want to eat marrow. You don't know what's good. I was in Scotland a few years ago and I was on a hike in the West Highland Way and I came to this little, uh, cafe in Scotland and they, they, they had a, I wanted a hamburger so bad. I was having America withdrawal real bad and they had a Scotland burger on the, uh, I mean, seriously, it had a Scottish flag stuck through the top of it. So it was an official Scotland burger, a Scottish cheeseburger, and it was made with ground beef and marrow. I was so hungry, I broke down. I said, if it's got marrow, I just want a hamburger. If it's got marrow, I'm okay with that. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be a good party. Marrow. Well-aged wine, well-refined. And God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. There's a party coming. That's awesome. Folks, it doesn't end in tears. It ends at a marriage supper. And you are invited. Did you know that? Personally invited. The entire Bible, the book of Revelation ends the Bible, and at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, the entire Bible ends with an invitation to this party. Revelation 22, verse 17. The bride, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the bride, the church, say... Come on, come on. 
And let the one who hears say, come. That's me, the preacher this morning. I'm with this invite. I'm saying, come. I'm the one who's heard. You're the one who hears. You should tell other people about the party too. Come, come on. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This ends with an invitation to a party. This is wonderful. This is good news. This is so joyful. I just want to know how I RSVP. How do you RSVP for this invitation? How do you respond? Well, some of us already have, but if you haven't, let me tell you how. The first thing is, if your heart is stirred by that invitation, the Spirit and the bride say, come on, then that's God's Holy Spirit calling you to the party right now. And the way we accept the invitation, the way we RSVP is, first of all, we turn away from not wanting to go to the party. <laughs> we clear our calendar. That's what we do. Turn away from self-directed living. Turn away from the things that separate us from God. We call that we, that's called repenting of your sin. The apostles preached this in Acts chapter three. Repent therefore, repent. Turn away from those things and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And listen, this is party language. That times of refreshing may, refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent. Turn away from those things. Clear your spiritual calendar. Second thing we need to do is accept. Accept Jesus. Receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Where do I get that from? Well, it comes out of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive Him, Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So receiving Christ is a part of accepting this invitation. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And then finally, give your life to Him without condition and without reservation. Matthew 16, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Or as I said earlier this morning in the first service, just get over yourself. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever would seek to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's how we respond to this invitation to the party. And you know what? Somebody did that this morning. Isn't that amazing? Somebody in this congregation this morning at 9 a.m. I didn't know I didn't know what was wrong with them. I think they were just filling out their RSVP. Their head was down, and they went out with another young woman. It was a very young woman, late teens. And they went out into another room here in the church. And the older the older lady of the two, the one who had already accepted her party invitation, took those verses and said, Here's how you accept your invitation, and led her to Christ. Praise God. It's not going to end in tears. It ends at a party. Won't you accept the invitation? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 